Well, I do uh, invite you to turn with me in the scriptures to Job, uh, the first chapter, uh, Job chapter 1. And uh, we will be looking um, at Job and also as Job uh, gives us a picture of Jesus and then making this as, uh, as, as personally applicable as we are able. So let us uh, t- uh, turn together to Job chapter 1 and I'll read... I'll read verses um, uh, 6 through 22. Job chapter 1. This is God's word. And now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave And the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrongdoing. 
We are all uh, these days affected by the stories of suffering as a result of COVID-19. There are stories, of course, we've seen of loss of life, loss of income, companies that have shuttered, and the effects that have been so broad and deep across our land. One of the stories of this past week that particularly overwhelmed me was reading of a doctor in an emergency room in New York City who was herself just swamped with all that was before her. And she did contract the disease. Uh, She uh, retired safely to her parents' home in Virginia where she recovered and was quarantined. But during this time, she also took her own life. So deep was the suffering that she had observed. We prayed earlier about the chaos in Lebanon. The social unrest there has been exacerbated by COVID-19. And we have friends who are there and suffering in that area too. Across the world, there is suffering. And one of the things that comes to our mind is, what does God have to do with this? What is the role of God in all of this? We may think, that God is coldly detached. We may think that God is, on the other hand, frustrated Himself by all that He sees and perhaps wringing His hands out of His own frustration, as it were. And yet the Scripture explains clearly that as a result of the fall, as a result of Adam's rebellion, He brought the curse not only upon Himself and upon Eve and upon all His Posterity, but also upon the creation itself. And Romans says that the creation groans as if in birth pangs. The creation is in bondage to decay, and it aches now, and it will continue to ache. It always had, has ached looking forward to the renewal of all things. And we may ask why. How has this happened? How has this suffering come upon even the created or who's behind that? And Romans again answers very clearly that it is God who has subjected our world to futility. Well, what about the place of COVID-19 and its effects throughout the world? Is this an example of what I learned when my wife was in her childbearing years? Was this, is this a case of Braxton Hicks uh, uh, contractions? That is an early uh, but unproductive labor looking forward to the last, the very last time? We don't know. And what about Satan, or as he is called in this passage, the Satan, the adversary, the enemy. He is identified in the scripture as the God of of this present darkness. First John goes farther along and even says the whole world lies under the power of this evil one. Peter speaks of him as a roaring lion. And we see him not just looking for some to devour, but actually devouring. He's doing it. Now, now how do we handle these two 
powers? Are they equal but opposite powers? Right now it seems as though Satan is getting the upper hand. Well, I want to use the term gospel reversal here, that things are not always as they seem. And and Satan, in the case of Job here, appears to be winning, but in his winning, he's actually losing. And then we will see Jesus, who comes into the world, and he appears to be losing, but in his losing, he's winning. And then we ourselves, in following Jesus, appear in many circumstances to be losing. But in our losing, we are also finding a way to win. And so this gospel reversal, our theme this morning is following Jesus, we too win by losing for the glory of God. We too win by losing for the glory of God. Now Satan opens up here in, uh, in uh, uh, Job, the early chapters here, apparently winning, but he is losing by winning. What strikes us immediately as we open this text is that God is in charge of the conversation and remains in charge of the conversation. As the, uh, as the creatures are coming before the Lord, the Lord asks Satan this question, what about Job? Have you considered, have you seen and considered Job? He's an exemplary man. He fears me and he turns from evil. Job, uh, Satan's response, well, who wouldn't? The prosperity gospel is working very well for him. Thank you very much. You take that away and he will turn against you. And God lets out Satan's leash. All he has is yours. All he has is yours. But don't touch him. And we've read, perhaps some of you have read in the past, the last part of chapter 1 of Job, and you hear wave after wave after wave of tragic, horrific suffering that comes his way. Four waves of death, of loss of property, but more significantly, the loss of lives of his servants, and then finally, his ten children. It is chilling. It is chilling to us to imagine anyone suffering to that extent. And then chapter 2 opens up, and God starts the conversation with Job again. We didn't read this, but I'll just refer. God starts the conversation again with Satan. And what we want God to say, what we want him to say is, Enough, Satan! Stay your hand! But he doesn't say that. He opens, he opens the conversation the same way. Look at Job. A man upright in heart. He fears me. He follows righteousness. Even after you have incited me to destroy him. But then he lets out the leash a little bit further. He's in your, he's in your hands. Only spare his life. God seems to almost have put Satan up to this. And he seems almost to be egging him on. He is certainly giving permission. And it is part of his decretive will. But we see in this place then, the Satan seems to be winning. It seems clear that he is winning the day. 
Now, the fascinating thing that we want to unfold here is that uh, Satan ends up losing by winning. What do I mean by that? Let's think in the example of Job himself. He is described as a sincere believer. He prayed for his children. He offered sacrifices for his children every time they got together to party, just in case one of them had, had disobeyed or been blasphemed the Lord. He was, he was a, a sincere, devoted follower of God. Elsewhere in Job, we, we find out that he is a very generous man. He's loaded but, but the widows in town have a smile on their face because of the way that he has cared for so many of them. He's blessed them. When they knock on his door for food, he's there. He opens up the kitchen and feeds them. He's a generous man. And his faith is also strong, strong enough to withstand his wife's evil. Curse God and die, she says. How would you like to live with an encouragement like that. And yet we are stunned uh, with his responses. First in 121, when he says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then in 2.10, after his wife says, Why do you hang on to your integrity? And he says to her, But he said to her, You speak. As one of the foolish women would speak, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Jacob did not sin um, with his lips. What we'll find out as we consider the life of Job and the experience of Job, that, that through this suffering and then through the, the, the chapters and the interval between, uh, between the, the beginning and the end of the book, uh, we see that Job came to love, love and to honor God even more deeply at the end of the book than he does right here. This is, this is st- stark obedience, powerful obedience, but he deepens in his love for God. And he repented of his pride of demanding anything from God by the end of the book. And he says this, he says this, I heard of you, I have heard of you, but now I have seen you with my eyes. In his suffering, he saw and experienced the presence of God in a way that he could not without suffering. Satan appeared to be winning, but he was losing. Well, what about God? What about God himself? That does this suffering somehow or other give God glory? Or is he just the detached deity? I've thought many, many times, if if Job had known, uh, while all of this was going on, if Job had known the millions, even the billions of people who know his name personally and can relate to his experience in some way personally and are held up by the power and the steadfast love and the mercy of God through their suffering, I wonder if he would also say, God, I would do it again to help such a a segment of people throughout the history of the world. That's glory to God. As God, uh, as all of them have had courage to hang on to God in their trouble. But we also give glory to God because Job is also a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
the righteous sufferer, who came not for himself and not without purpose, but for the sins of his people, to suffer for you and me. And the world, the world that he had made, the world did not know him. And they treated him as an outcast. Job gets glory. Job gets, gets rich blessing even through this suffering. God gets glory. Well, what happens to us in our COVID world? How do we respond to our own suffering here? Some cannot see any good in what's going on. While we don't see good in the evil, the presence of such evil does point us to the goodness that is coming. So we lament. We lament. We suffer along with so many today, but not without hope. All Satan's cruelty must finally come to good for God's people. The Braxton Hicks contractions of this day uh, don't last forever, but there will be, at one time, productive labor, and the creation will be set free from bondage to decay. The creation will be set free and we will be restored better than we were created in Eden. We will be restored to enjoy that new heavens and that new earth forever. And that's our hope, and that carries us through. But I want to think even more directly, is there an effect that the COVID suffering has on you right now? We even might ask the question, how is it changing you? I believe, and this is certainly not an original thought with me, but I believe that this suffering will affect many people in ways unforeseen, spiritually as well as certainly physically and emotionally. So let's think about spiritual distance for just a moment. Is this creating spiritual distance for you? Not, not from people right now, but I'm thinking from God. Because we, at any particular time, it has been said, and I think wisely, that at any particular time, we are moving either away from God or towards God. We are either practicing humility and exercising faith when it's difficult, or we are hardening ourselves and becoming cynical people or becoming complainers. We are either moving towards God in humility, or we are hardening our hearts against Him, and that is evidenced by the way we speak. Is your suffering bringing... You closer. Could we say, like Job, that your suffering is actually giving you new eyes to see God more clearly now than you had before? And then what about social distance? I, I wonder, uh, for some, whether this time of social distance is really something that has been almost almost welcomed as a world, their world is allowed to shrink and they can just be thinking about themselves and their families. That is a possibility. And so what, you, what, what a growth would look like in our social relationships, especially now when it's hard that we are willing to look outside of ourselves and reaching out to others, whether it is phone calls, whether it is notes, it's understanding who 
perceiving who may be in particular need right now, and you reach out to them. Offer help in any way that they might ask. You seek to be of help. Uh, Satan, you see, Satan is losing by winning. On the other hand, Jesus wins by losing. I want, I want to just sketch for a few moments here the way that, the way the enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, um, have, uh, have, have been in conflict. It's conflict as Satan hatches his plan. That, that curse from the book of Genesis, my, the enmity between, God will place enmity between you, serpent, and the woman between her offspring and yours, and he will bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so that creates a scenario, a, a context in which there will, be, there will be conflict throughout the history of the world between Satan and God's people, and it culminates with conflict with Jesus Christ himself. Looking now before Christ... We remember two, two gross examples of infanticide, for example. The, 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 the slaughtering of the young boys uh, in Egypt. Uh, certainly, Satan would, uh, would, uh, would, would lead uh, the Pharaoh to act in such a way in order, in his purposes, to cut off the bloodline to Christ. And we think of, in Bethlehem as well, the slaughter of the innocents. Surely, with this sweep, he would snag Jesus. But of course, the battle goes on, and in early in Jesus' ministry, we see the opening skirmish in the wilderness. And in this situation, Adam II is able to defeat the serpent, Satan. Um, he is able to repulse the assaults of the enemy, and 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 the um, the serpent left, or the Satan left him for a more opportune time. And the greatest opportune time would, would come at the, uh, at the death of Jesus. And we see at the last Passover, for example, listen to the, listen to the interplay and in these dynamics going on in the last Passover. Jesus takes charge of his own betrayal. Uh, he's sitting there at dinner at that last Passover, and, and he makes this statement, the one to whom I give this bread will betray me. And then he gives it to Judas. And at that moment, the scripture says, Satan entered Judas. And Jesus said immediately, now Judas, go quickly, be about your task. And immediately Judas went out and he went into the night. Judas went out and the scripture says, and it was night. He left Jesus and the circle of light, Jesus being the light of the world, and he entered into the darkness to to continue to perpetuate the plan of the enemy. But of course, Jesus wins through the weakness and shame. He came in, Philippians 2 says, in the form of God, or genuinely God himself. And yet he was also in the form of a servant, genuinely a, a, a human being, one of us. And he came as as a human and as God himself to serve us. And he took on our weak and our poor nature and was obedient even to the point of death on the cross. 
And there on the cross, Satan now finally appears to have won for sure. But Satan was the only one who was calling that day Good Friday, and he didn't see Easter coming. But God raised him, uh, Jesus from the dead, exalted him, and it was the beginning of the end for Satan's tyranny. Jesus wins by losing, losing through the death on the cross. I want to think about our own experience then. How do we take this this, uh, winning by losing theme? We see this uh, in, in the scriptures in very powerful ways. That we win, first of all, you win when tempted. You win when you are tempted. Now, of course, a part of Satan's strategy is to tempt you to sin so that he can accuse you. It's not just the sin, but it's the accusation that you then bear up under. Jonathan Edwards puts it in this way, summarized. When Satan tempts you, whether or not you give into it, you are guaranteed to be better off having faced it. Satan tempts you, and you may fall. But whether or not you give into it, this is God's promise. You are guaranteed to be better off having faced it, even if you fall. Now, does your view of God and His goodness and His sovereignty include that radical notion? Is God that good and that wise and that strong? Well, let's go back to Peter um, and in a conversation with Jesus at the the time leading up to Peter's denial. Listen to what our Lord says. Jesus advises Peter, Satan has demanded you in order that he could sift you like wheat. Now, the next thing he says is not, but God has forbidden him to tempt you. It's not what it says at all. Listen to what Jesus says. I have prayed for you that when you sin, um, your faith would not fail. Peter is the better for having fallen. Jesus goes on to say, when you've turned, when you've repented, strengthen your brothers. You've been through an experience that all people suffer. When you've turned, you've got some fresh encouragement that will lift the hearts of millions. Later on, Peter would write this, talking uh, in Second uh, in Peter, is your faith uh, through testing proved genuine? It's a place for testing. It's not always that you'll win. But even if you lose, it results in the glory and the praise and honor to Jesus Christ who loves to rescue sinners. See, why is this so important? I think we often think of God as a stingy and reluctant God. He's stingy with grace. He's reluctant to be merciful. He's reluctant to hear us or help us or forgive us. But I've been reading, uh, reading recently and soaking in uh, Psalm uh, 81. And I just want to bring that in here. The Israel there was, was in the process of chasing after other gods. And God 
God rescues them. And this is how he, this is how he does it. He reminds them. He says, I uh, was the one that rescued you from Egypt. Um, I was the one that rescued you from Egypt. You are not to have any other gods before you. They were in the midst of, they were already in the land. They were already, uh, already worshiping false gods. This is how God entices them. Break off from your false gods. Break off from those gods. With these words, he says, open wide your mouths and I will fill it. So what he is saying here is that the bigger the need, the more he delights to give. The more you desire him, the more he gives to you. And even as you return from your pet idolatry, the wider you open your mouth, the more God will bless you with himself and with mercy and kindness. The more he gives. As I've been reflecting on this, I've been, I've been seeing the picture of Stephen Dufresne. Uh, having been having been uh, having broken out of the of the prison, falsely accused, f- falsely imprisoned, and as and as he stands in the river, uh, having having gone through a very dirty exit pr- process, he's standing in the river, opening his mouth wide. The the thunderstorm is, is pouring down on him, and he is being cleansed. And he's being, and he's receiving, the wider he opens his mouth, the more blessings he's receiving. And I've been, I've been finding myself praying like that. Literally opening my mouth, receiving from the Lord blessings from heaven. You see, like Job and like Peter, you get to know God better when you see him In this way, you're seeing more of the ugliness of your demands that God answer you in His way and in His timing. You're seeing some of the more subtle ways than perhaps what Peter did, more subtle ways of denying Him, denying His authority in your life. But you come to God to drink of mercy. And the thirstier you are, the wider you open your mouth, the more He fills it. So you win, even when you lose. You can't be defeated. So you are, you are winning, even when you're losing. The same thing happens when you're tempted. The same thing here, just in the general principle of you win when you're weak. We naturally, and we're thinking of Second Corinthians uh, chapter, uh, chapter 12 in this context, but we naturally desire to be strong and independent. We don't want to show weakness. Uh, we, we maybe even have heard these words, be a man! Or be a strong woman. Don't let anyone see you cry. Don't ask for help. Give the impression that you're managing is the subtext in all of this. Whatever you do, be strong, independent, and isolate, rather insulated, from the opinions of other people. Uh, Paul David Tripp puts it this way, God's grace is most powerfully present when you are at your weakest. You win by losing. And that, of course, is what Paul says in this section in 2 Corinthians. My power is made perfect in weakness. Satan, uh, Satan uh, gave Paul a thorn that he meant to harm him, and God used it for his good. Right? 
That's the summary of what we're getting at right here. Satan has a thorn for you, and he means it to destroy you, but God means it for good. Paul was able then, it goes on to say, to be content with the insults, to be content with the persecutions, with the hardships, with the calamities, be content with them. Because he's able to boast in his weaknesses, and that becomes an opportunity then to boast in God. Just as Jesus stepped onto the head of the snake with his heel and ground it, stepped into his pain in his, in his death in order to crush the, the serpent, we step into our pain and we're able to experience the merciful forgiveness and restoration of God. Amazing thing, that the more you embrace your weakness, the wider you open your mouth. And the more you know of God's power and presence and kindness and patience and long-suffering, mercy. But the less you admit your weaknesses, what you are really saying about God is that He is stiff-lipped. He has pursed lips. He is stingy. He is a reluctant God. And He is unmoved by your plight. Well, I want you to think about your place of struggle right now, your stress point. (laughs) What is your circumstance of suffering? Does it feel inflexible? Um, Does it feel rock-like? Does it feel unyielding? Are you in a place that it just feels, it just, you seem to be unfruitful and barren because of this circumstance around you, the circumstance of which you're in. We often feel that way on this side of the coming kingdom. It's, it's part of living in this fallen world, in the death throes, in the, in the throes of, of labor and delivery. Back to Psalm 81, but that's exactly where God wants to meet you and does promise to meet you. And he says at the end of that psalm, listen to these words, with honey from the rock, I will satisfy you. Where's your rock? Where's your rock? What's your rock? That's where you're going to be tasting honey from God. The sweetness of his love and affection and favor and presence. All that he's working in you right now. So you embrace that weakness with a wide open mouth. Well, how is God calling you to die in order to live? That's the next. How is he calling you to die? Die to something in order to live that resurrection life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Another way to ask it is, what will you lose in order to win? What will you lay down, because of your pride, lay down that pride in order to win? What rights will you give up? What demands will you give up in order to win? What acts of kindness, maybe to someone that you resent, laying down a perceived right of retaliation, that's how you live. Lay it down and you live. You'll die and then you live. Well, kids, I want to, want to conclude with just some thoughts for you. How can you... It's a funny thing I've been saying today, isn't it? It's a funny thing. Have you got your mind around it yet? That you win by losing? That doesn't make sense. But you win by losing. Jesus won by losing his life on the cross. Okay, so, so I want you to think about what can you do that feels like losing, but is really a way of winning. 
you're cooped up and, um, and you're sometimes getting tired, I think possibly getting tired of being with the same people most of the time, a little bit irritated sometimes, am I getting warm? Well, um, here, here's one for you. This is a way for you to die so that you can live, or to put it a little bit less stridently, to lose so that you can win. Uh, how about this? Show kindness to the sibling who is irritating you. the one you're probably thinking of right now, who gets under your skin, think of ways that you can be kind to him, a smile or her, a smile, just doing some, some favor. Maybe it's, maybe it's play the game that they want instead of demanding that they play what you want. Maybe it's sharing a toy with them that you really want to play with yourself, just sharing. It sounds small, doesn't it? Uh, it but it, another thing is just to look for ways that you can help around the house without being asked losing a little bit of your freedom, as you give up your freedom, you find more freedom in serving and loving the Lord and loving your parents. And that all comes, it all comes from Jesus, who won for you by losing. And as you then, as you then um, purpose to, to lose something in your own life in order to glorify Jesus, you find yourself knowing Him, seeing Him, seeing Him and loving Him. And let us pray together. God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, blessed indwelling Spirit, we thank You for the mystery of the Gospel. Things are not what we would think. Things in the kingdom do not work the way they do in the world. We think of of winning by winning. The Gospel calls us to think of winning by losing. And so we pray that you would deeply affect each one of us just where we need it for your glory. Strengthen us in the beauty of Jesus. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.